Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. You've probably seen this photograph before. It's one of the most iconic images of the landings on June 6, 1944. Uh, This is an American soldier by the name of Houston Riley who's swimming ashore on Omaha Beach. This is around 6.30, 6.40 in the morning. And what Private First Class Riley has already gone through is that the front of his landing ship has been shot up and he's had to climb over the side. And he's wearing all his equipment, his heavy gear, his boots, his weapons, his ammunition, and he jumps over the side and he sinks into water that's actually over his head. And Riley, as he was reporting this years later, said, I tried to hold my breath as long as I could and just walk along the bottom to be able to get toward the surface and swim to shore. And you have to remember that at this time, There are machine guns and cannons and such a raid across the hills overlooking the beach manned by the Nazi soldiers guarding that beach. And they're shooting at the the British and American and Canadian soldiers that are jumping out of these landing craft. And as they're coming coming to shore, they're storming the beaches. Riley didn't know what else to do. He had two inflatable Navy issue life belts life preserver belts. He, he pulled the string on, they inflated, and he immediately bobbed up to the surface. But the trouble is the, the life vest was around his waist, so his whole chest and his head is sticking out above the water, and he's just kind of bobbing along there, an easy, topic, uh, easy target for the gunners on the shore, the enemy gunners. So he takes off his life belt, and he begins to sink down, and he just holds it to his chest. And as he's holding it to his chest, with just his head above the water, he began swimming closer and closer and closer to shore. He says that he reckons it took him about a half an hour after he got out of the boat to get up on the sand. Now there was another man that had jumped out of a landing craft. As you can tell by the angle of the photograph, there's a photographer and his name is Robert Kappa. And Robert Kappa was the only still photographer that was on the beach in the first wave of the landings. And he had a 35 millimeter camera, and as he had gotten off his boat, he got behind one of those hedgehogs, those big iron beams that looked like crosses, X's, kind of dotting all along the shoreline. He, he crept up, was able to swim up behind one of those. There was a bombed out armored personnel carrier, and he was able to swim over behind that for shelter as people are shooting. And he's just carrying a camera, he's not carrying a gun. And, and as he's turning around, he sees Private Riley coming to shore and he fires off a quick photograph. And then he ran over with another sergeant and helped pull Riley to shore. Capra, Kappa, the photographer, was able to get back on a landing craft, go back out to his ship. There was a courier and four rolls of film were sent to London where they were developed and then they were flown, to, the negatives were flown to the United States and they were printed in the, the June 19th edition of Life magazine. That's an old magazine that's now out of print. But it was a f- picture magazine that came out every week by the publishers of Time magazine. This photograph 
pictured what those soldiers were going through on that day, how, how harrowing, how dangerous, how frightening the experience was. I have to admit that every time I've watched movies about D-Day, The Longest Day, Saving Private Ryan, things like that, you watch movies like that and you see these guys coming ashore and they're, they're, they're jumping out of the boats in, in water that's way too deep and you're thinking, how in the world are they going to get to shore? And you, you see some of them even dropping their guns and dropping their ammunition belts and things like that. And, and how are they going to? I had no idea they had life preservers. I had no idea that that was part of the equipment. Those life belts saved Private Riley's life that day. And it's because of that he was able to go short. By the way, Private Riley had the distinction of being part of the first wave of invaders in North Africa to drive the Nazis out of there. He was in the first wave of invaders on Sicily the year earlier. And then he was in the first wave on June 6, 1944. That's one of the few soldiers that really had that distinction. And he was seriously wounded during the Battle of the Bulge and wound up coming back to the States to recuperate. And he lived for many, many years, passed away in 19, excuse me, 2011 in Seattle, Washington. That's his hometown. The kind of equipment you have when you go into battle makes all the difference. The kind of armor you're wearing, the kind of provisions that you have makes all the difference. We said last week as we started looking at this idea at the end of the book of Ephesians that, that we're in a war. And, and, and this is something that's hard for us to understand that we are in a war. We're, we're wrapping up this, this very majestic letter, this very eloquent letter describing who we are in Christ and all that Christ has done for us. The life that we have in Him. The forgiveness we have in Him. The, the hope that we have in Him. And we've, we've explored this year our identity in Christ as it's been revealed in this New Testament letter of the letter of Ephesians. And we come to the end of this letter and there's like this climactic, this apex of, of teaching that Paul is making. And he's saying, okay, you're seated in the heavenlies with Christ and now you're called to walk with Christ and walk in the newness of life. But you know you've got to take a stand. And you have to understand that as you live this life for Christ, there are going to be forces of evil that will oppose you. They are arrayed against you. But thank God He has an army. And you're saying, boy, I'm sure glad that there's an army fighting for us. And you know, every time we introduce the veterans or we are at a Memorial Day parade or a Veterans Day parade and we, we salute these men and women who have fought valiantly for our freedom and we congratulate them and we honor them and we say thank you for your service. You know, when it comes to the church, you can't just say thank you for your service because we're all in the army. We can't look at somebody else and say, I'm sure glad they fought for us. Yes, thank God for the missionaries like the tons. Thank God for the pastors and elders that lead the church. Thank God for the other heroes of our faith and we are grateful for them. But all of us in the, are in the army of Christ. You say, how do you know? Well, you know what? If you're a follower of Christ, you're in His army. And if you're in His army, in Christ's army, you have supernatural foes. And if you have supernatural foes, then you need God's power. And that's what this passage is talking about. You need His army if you're going to fight against them. And you'll see in the beginning of, of the passage that we're going to read that these, these foes, these enemies that are arrayed against us are not human beings. 
It's not some other nationality or religious group or, or political party that we don't agree with. It's, it's not somebody like that. It's, it's spiritual enemies, supernatural enemies, demons and, and spiritual forces arrayed against us, principalities, powers like the King James Version says, authorities and cosmic powers and rulers and, and the spiritual forces of evil that are arrayed, arrayed against us. And you're saying, ah, you know, that sounds like a bunch of ghosts and you know, imaginary, fairy tale, magical kind of stuff. No, 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 no. There is a reality that you and I can't see. There's a reality that we, can't necess- we don't necessarily feel or smell or even hear, but it's just as real and it's just as powerful. It's the demonic world, the angelic world that's around us. And we need to be willing to stand up and fight against it because that's what we've been called to do. So last week as we were looking here in Ephesians chapter 6, we saw that we need the power of God. We're weak and we're called to battle and we're not in shape and we don't have supernatural abilities ourselves. We need God's power. And so thank God that we can stand and stand aggressively against the forces of evil with the power of God. But as we get to verse 14, he begins to explain what does this power look like? And he describes it as a suit of armor, the complete weaponry, the total comprehensive equipment package that a soldier, an infantry man or woman would wear as they stepped into battle. And we're going to explore that today because if you wear the weapons, you win the war. You wear the weapons, you win the war. That's, that's really what he says in verses 14 to 17. I'd like you to follow along as I read. We're just going to read this again, and I'd like you to follow. We're going to start in verse 10 just to get the complete overview, and I want you to follow along carefully. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. In this passage, Paul is challenging us. We've got these enemies 
We need God's power. So how do we activate the power of God in our life to resist evil? Where am I going to get the power to say no to temptation? Where am I going to get the power to be able to keep on doing what's right and good, to be patient, to be gentle when I don't feel like doing that, when I feel like blowing my, blowing my stack and exploding in my anger? What do I do to, to keep that in check? What do I do when I don't feel like loving other people and I need to show love, whether it's my spouse or my kids or my parents or my neighbors or or people that I just meet. I know I'm called to love, but man, I sure don't have the strength to do that. Where do I get the power to act that way? Where do I get the power to really stand up and speak up and be there present to be a witness to the people around me who don't yet know Christ? Where do I get that power? Paul is saying this power is available to you through the armor of God, and you have to put it on. Because if you wear the weapons, you win the war. That's what we're called to understand. You wear these weapons and you win the war. Now, a lot of us, a lot of us, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about, you know, well, I, sh- I, should, I should get my concealed carry permit and I need to get the gun. I need to get the training. I need to do that. And that's all well and good. You can do that. You have the freedom to do that. I, I need an alarm system at my home. And maybe, maybe you're thinking, I need to make proper investments so I have financial security to protect myself. And we're thinking about all these things that we need to do to physically protect ourselves. I've got to get the vaccinations so I don't get that disease. I need to get my annual checkup so that, that I'm healthy and strong. And if there's a problem, they can catch it and fix it. But here we're told there are wep- there are enemies far greater than any disease, far greater than any terrorists that would threaten you, far greater than any financial calamity that would ever befall you, far greater than any of these physical foes that we're frightened by. They are spiritual enemies that we need to stand up against. And the only way we can stand up against them is in the power of God. We're too weak. We're too foolish. We're too, we're too unable to do what God is calling us to do. We need His armor. It's almost like the research that they're doing in robotics and such that they've developed these types of exoskeletons. Do you know what I'm talking about? Equipment that actually straps around the limbs of a paraplegic or quadriplegic's body. And they strap this on and they can actually control and move their arms and move their legs and do very simple walking and picking up of objects because there's a skeleton, a, a, a mechanical device that's actually wrapped around their bodies and limbs that's able to, motiv- to move them and they can function. They have no strength and ability on their own, but that equipment is able enables them to move and to act and to work. It's still in exploratory stages. It's still in rudimentary research. But maybe someday people who have, been, have suffered spinal cord injuries, they'll be able to function and work and, and move again through this equipment's help. Spiritually speaking, we're spiritually dead without Christ. We are weak without Christ. And, and we have nothing without Christ. But in Christ, we have His power. And it's like that kind of an armor that enables us then to, motive, to, to move and work and fight against our enemies. What we want to do today is just explore the pieces of the armor. We're just going to focus in verses 14 to 17 here in chapter 6. This is page 979. And I encourage you to follow along and just think about this 
and, and remember this. And I'm going to ask Frank if you'd go on to the next slide and do that, please. Here are some reenactors. I showed you this picture last week. This is a group of reenactors over in Europe. They made their authentic, uh, true to scale, according to the best historical research, their own Roman soldier armament. And, and they, they go out and play army, like the, the guys do up at Gettysburg with their Civil War outfits and stuff, and, and soldier uh, muskets and things and cannons. And, and, it, and it's, it's funny, you know, because all of us boys, we really grow up just wanting to play army, and we never really outgrow that. And uh, I think hunting is kind of like playing army out in the woods and things like that. So I, I do it too. So anyway, these guys have dressed up, and they have their helmets, they have the swords, you see the shields, you can see the belt, you can see the breastplate. And all the equipment that we're going to be talking about here in this passage, you see a picture of it there. And so as you think about what Paul is describing, he's probably looking at the Roman soldiers that are guarding him. Or maybe he sees them marching up and down the street as, as he's being held in captivity, waiting for his trial uh, before Caesar. And, and as he's going through all of these things, he's watching these soldiers. He's aware of these soldiers because they were everywhere present in the empire. And as he's thinking about the, the army of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to be everywhere present taking a stand for him, ready to be faithful and bold and declaring his gospel to others to advance his kingdom against the enemy and the enemy's strongholds. And so as Paul goes through and delineates these different types of equipment, you and I need to understand them and accept them and appropriate them for ourselves. And there's something else here that's kind of underneath the surface going on. Everything that Paul is telling you to put on here has already been talked about in the book of Ephesians. He's, he's not giving you something new. He's saying, just appropriate, put into practice what I've already taught you about your relationship with Christ. And so he says in verse 14, stand, that's the command, take a stand, stand aggressively against the evil one, take a stand, how? By having fastened on the belt of truth. You can see the belt of truth, especially in that center soldier there. It has a little bit of a loin covering that comes down like that, but it's a belt, and it went on first. But notice that the belt is not a belt, it's actually truth. That's what Paul is saying, put on. Put on truth like a belt. Now, I remember as a kid, uh, we were having dinner. My bro younger brothers and I were sitting at the dinner table. Mom had fixed something probably very healthy, and we were kind of grousing about having to eat it. And uh, my youngest brother was kind of bellyaching about what was going on, and Dad said, if you don't eat, I'm going to take off my belt. And Mom says, and you know what happens when Dad takes off his belt. And my younger brother, who's a bit of a comedian, said, said, uh, yeah, his pants fall down. <laughs> one, of the great, one of the great dialogues in, in Morgan family history right there, okay? Well, you know what? For a soldier going into battle, you did have to have your belt on because if you didn't, then your, your, your skirt, your, your apron that you were wearing, the clothing that you were wearing would flap around and you would, you would get tangled up in it. You need to put your belt on because your breastplate attached to it. Your sword hung down from it, and it's, and it's scabbard there. It's sheath. You, you, it, was, it was part of it. You would hang provisions off your belt. You, you needed the belt first because it kind of anchored everything else in your armament. It's like a utility belt. 
And so as he's wearing this belt, he, he was kind of tucked in and ready for battle. But Paul says the belt you and I need to put on is truth. And what do we mean by truth? What is Paul referring to with truth? He's talking about reality. An understanding of reality. What is true? And so as you go back through this passage of Scripture, you can see over and over that he's referring to the truth that there is in, in Christ. And, and I believe it's verse 13 of chapter 1. We read these words, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him and were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Their salvation was anchored in the truth of God, a sense of reality. And the reality is this, that Christ died for our sins and He rose from the dead and He conquered the evil one and He's defeated the forces of evil. And I am in desperate need of that salvation, that forgiveness, that acceptance with God because I can't fight against the forces of evil by myself. It starts with that sense of reality. And the thing is, is that your, your enemy, the devil, the evil one, he fights against you with lies. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, that the devil is the father of lies. And so he will lie to you all the time. He will tempt you and deceive you and discourage you and frighten you and try to lead you into despair. He wants to intimidate you. He wants to make you feel like that you can't win. You can't stand up against him. And the thing is, is that you and I have to constantly be thinking about what is true. The devil, listen, Fake news was not started in the last presidential campaign. <laughs> Fake news has been from the Garden of Eden where there have been lies and deceptions from the evil one. And so in our world, though, this is what's frightening when you think about this. And whatever your political loyalties, wherever they lie, you need to understand that we're in a climate where people are basically saying you can pick and choose what's true. You can pick and choose your own reality. And if this politician says, no, that's not true, but the facts are otherwise, he thinks he's right and his followers think he's right. And those facts, that reality must be wrong. And you and I need to understand that that's not true. That God's word is truth. That Jesus himself is the truth and the way and the life. He wants us to understand that whatever Jesus is saying and doing is reality. And you have to anchor and found your life on that. And so it is true that God loves you and He delights in you. And it is true that you are lost and a sinner and you desperately need God's forgiveness and acceptance. And it's true that Christ loved you so much that He died for you. And it's true that He conquered death by rising from the dead. And it's true that He's coming back. And it's true that He has a plan and purpose for your life. And it's true that God loves and has sees the value and worth of all people, whatever their color and background. And it's true. It's true. It's true that you belong to Him and He belongs to you. And the devil will lie to you and accuse you and say all kinds of things to discourage you and frighten you and make you think it's not worth following Christ. But the truth is it is worth it because Christ gave Himself for you and lives for you. 
You have to constantly go back to what do I know from the Word of God? This book is true. Look, it's not true because you believe it. You believe it because it's true. This book works not because it's true. I I mean, excuse me, it, it works because it is true. It's not necessarily true just because it works. That's what I'm trying to say. When you trust it, when you rely on it, you will see it working in your life because it is true. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. It is reality. So don't fall for the devil's fake news. Make sure you know the truth. And the truth is found in God's Word. They were saved because of the truth that they had heard. Now notice what else it says in verse 14. You put on this belt of truth, wrap it around your waist, let it be part of every aspect of your life. And then he says, but you also put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, we would say, you you put on the bulletproof vest, the flak jacket, the body armor that protects the vital organs here in your chest cavity. You, you put that on, and you can see the soldiers, they're, they're, we, they're wearing hinged plates of armor on their chest and on their shoulders. You, you can see that. And, and, and Paul is saying, you, you need to wear this kind of armor. You need to put on, but the, but the armor that you're putting on is not made of metal, it's not made of tradition. It's not made of your feelings. It's made of righteousness. And righteousness is the idea of being vindicated before God. To be declared right or justified in God's sight. God is the almighty, all-wise judge who holds everybody accountable in the entire universe. And He is the only one who can judge everyone accurately without any kind of bias, without any kind of mistaken information. He is able to discern every thought, every motive, sees every action, hears every word, and He holds all people everywhere in this universe accountable. And God the Father judged His own Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, and He vindicated Him. And though the judgment and wrath of God was poured out on Jesus as He hung on that cross, Jesus suffered and died there, God the Father vindicated Him, justified Him, declared Him right. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what he said at the beginning of his ministry. It certainly was a message conveyed all throughout the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was received up out of the grave into glory, Jesus was, exalted and given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess, He is Lord. That's the ultimate vindication. And because we are in Christ, that's what Paul is saying, because we have been forgiven, as it says in chapter 1, because we have been accepted into God's family. In chapter 2, it says we've been reconciled to God and we've become members of His family. And all throughout this book, Christians are called by this special little name that you and I often misunderstand. We are called saints. We're called saints. And we think in our culture that these are special Super spiritual individuals. Maybe they have miraculous powers. Maybe they did great deeds. They are favored by the church. They are exalted and they're called Saint so-and-so. Whoever they might be. But God says you're a saint if you're a Christian. You are God's holy one. That's what the word saint means. You belong to Him. You have been set apart from sin. You are God's property. You belong to Him. You are one of His holy people. 
That's this righteousness that we're talking about. And so the devil, he will attack you by accusing you. That's what his name means, the devil. In Greek, it's diabolos. He's an accuser. He's a slanderer. And he will constantly say to you, you're not worthy. You failed. You've sinned. I remember one time in college where I had sinned. I had consciously, deliberately chose to do something that I shouldn't do. And as soon as I had done it, I felt so guilty. And I thought, I think I just threw away my salvation. And I don't know if I can ever get it back. And I was overwhelmed with that thought. I was overwhelmed with that thought. I learned later it was ultimately the accuser. Look at you. Look how you failed. You don't deserve God's love. You don't deserve His favor. You don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve to serve Him. You don't deserve any of this. Look at you. You're such a screw-up. Look at you. You're such a sinner. And you've heard that and I've heard that. And you know, the thing is, maybe you heard it from your parents and maybe you heard it from your spouse or maybe you heard it from some friends or a boss or a, a pastor or priest in your life, whoever it was. Maybe you heard that kind of accusation, but that wasn't ultimately coming through that other human being. It was coming from somewhere else, deeper, lower, dirtier. It was the accusation of the devil. And you know, there's also this thing. Sometimes it's not other people saying it. You hear it in your own voice inside your own head and heart. I just want to let you know that that comes from the devil too. And he can imitate your voice. So don't listen to him. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He has forgiven you and accepted you and made you a member of his family if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life I have, left a completely, I have lived a completely sinful, fallen life. But when I put my trust in Christ, there was a grand exchange. And my sin and dirtiness and failure and shame and guilt was placed on Jesus. And His righteousness and His holiness and His goodness was placed on me. And that's true of everyone else who's put their trust in Christ. So you wear that, that righteousness as a breastplate. It will protect you against the accusations, the slander of the devil because he will slander you. He will accuse you and you're vindicated in Christ. So that's some of the clothing we're supposed to put on. But notice in verse 6, uh, excuse me, verse 15, you need, a, you need a good set of shoes, okay? And so it says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So if you look in our picture here, you can see the Roman soldiers. They're wearing these sandals that are strapped on with these leather thongs and straps and such. And, and, and they almost look like boots because they actually were, there was a lot of leather. And you could just imagine several layers of leather for the sole and they would actually take a hobnail. And that's a, that's a nail. It's, it's, it's kind of short and it has a rounded head. Okay, it's not a flat head. It's not just like a finishing nail. It's, it's something with a, a wider head, but it's got like a bump on the top of it. And so they would, they would nail this through the soles, and then they would hammer down the points, okay? And then they would put a couple other pieces of leather for the, for the lining, so to speak. And then there would be straps of leather that would tie it on to the feet and ankle and, and calf. 
And they would do this. And so you could just imagine, here's this flat leather sole, and there's these little bumps on the bottom, kind of almost like, like, almost like lug, you know, tread or something like that. Just to, just to maybe give you a little bit of grip to help you hold your ground. A little bit of metal there to give it some durability. And, and that's, that's a picture here of, of this. And he says, you're to put on shoes like that, only not leather shoes with hobnails in the sole, but you need to put on the preparation of the gospel of peace. And there's a lot of discussion among Bible scholars what in the world Paul's talking about here, but this is the sense that I have of it. He's talking about being ready to share the gospel, being prepared to share the gospel, and the gospel is the message of peace, the good news of peace. We're to, and this is very ironic. Have you noticed this? That you know, peace has been weaponized to fight against the forces of evil. We're, we're talking about warfare, and we're saying one of the weapons is peace. Oh, okay. He's talking about the fact that we can have peace with God, that we're no longer at war with Him, that we can be accepted and forgiven by Him and reconciled to Him. And not only that, but when you read in chapter 2, you see very clearly verse 11 or so down to verse 14 and, and further that here the Jews and the Gentiles, these these racial enemies, these religious enemies, fighting against each other, always at war with each other, always uh, complaining and arguing and, and, and expressing themselves in a very bigoted way toward each other, this racial hostility. In Christ, that barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles been, has been knocked down. There, there's no longer a, a, a need to be at war with people who are different than you. He's, he's made it possible for us to be reconciled and live in peace with other people. Even if they're different than us. Even if they come from a different background. And we can do that. And so, and so what he's saying here is that if you really want to end all human wars, you need to fight the spiritual war and defeat the forces of evil. And you do that by declaring the gospel, the good news of how people can have peace with God. You need to declare it. You need to march into battle wearing the peace of God and be prepared to share that peace with others. How? By claiming peace for yourself, living in peace with God, accepting that I'm at peace with Him, recognizing that whoever I meet, that God wants to be at peace with them and He sent Christ to die for them, to reconcile them to Himself. And then just marching forward and declaring that message to others and living as a peacemaker ourselves. It means that we live in peace with each other in the church. It means that even if we don't believe the same thing politically or we're, we go to different schools or we, we've come from a different background or we're at a different level in society when it comes to our social status, whatever they might be, we, we don't let those differences divide us. Instead, we live in peace with each other. And so often the churches are fighting, the Christians in churches are fighting among themselves. And the, church, the watching world says, I don't, want any, I don't want any of that. Those Christians can't even get along with each other. We put on the shoes of the gospel of peace to take a stand and we share that gospel with others so they can find peace with God ourselves. But they'll never want it unless we are living it and living in peace ourselves. He then says in verse, the next verse, verse 16, in all circumstances, and 
some of the translations say above all else as if it were the most important piece of armor. And it's not really that idea. It's the idea of whatever circumstances, in all circumstances, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you may be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, notice that. Every situation you're in, all the circumstances that you're in, make sure you've got faith as a shield. Because if you do that, every time the devil attacks you, every time he fires his flaming arrows at you, and by flaming arrows we're talking about things like doubt and discouragement, strong temptations. Have you ever been doing that? You've been reading your Bible or just driving along, minding your own business, and all of a sudden a very erotic thought or a very bitter thought or a very greedy, prideful thought just, just pops into your head? Oh, I thought, okay, I'm the only one. All right. <laughs> Okay, well, this is for me. I just want to let you know, this is for me. No, I know that that's not true because he put into your head the, you know, the, the temptation to lie. So, okay, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Despair, discouragement, pride, thinking that you've arrived, this idea of, you know, sense of triumphalism. Hey, you know, I've got my spiritual act together. All of this kind of anxiety, worry, fear. These are all the flaming arrows that the devil launches at you. They would do this in the ancient world. And this was, this was a weapon of mass destruction in the ancient world. And they would have these, these arrows with the shaft and there would be an iron point on it. And there would actually be a little bit of like a basket something kind of woven there, and they would stuff it full of, of straw or, or uh, uh, fiber, plant fiber, and, and they would just light it. And they would actually loosen the string on the bow a little bit, and they would pull it back, and they would launch it, and they would just lob it so that it didn't fly so fast it would extinguish the, the flame. And they would, they would launch it, and it would, it would hit the soldiers and catch them on fire. It would hit the wooden structures inside the city, behind the city walls, and it would start burning. And all of a sudden, the people of the city that you're attacking, they're not only fighting against the enemy, but now they're fighting fires inside the city. And so he's saying that here's this analogy that the evil one, he's launching these missiles at you, these arrows at you, and they're on fire and they're his temptations, they are his, his fears, all these thoughts that he's launching. And you can be praying, you can be playing with your kids, talking with your spouse, minding your own business. Have you ever had this? This, is, this is, may sound a little weird. Have you ever been driving along and there's some phone poles by the road? Have you ever thought, driving the phone pole? Have you ever had something like that? No, I, I, okay, again, maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> Have you ever been up on a tall structure, maybe something tall like a, one of the towers at Gettysburg, the observation towers, or maybe you've gone up into the Empire State Building. Of course, now you can't do it, but have you ever been into a high place like that and you thought, climb over and jump off? You ever thought that? And you just keep your poker face on and don't shake because everybody, don't shake your head because everybody will look at you. But you know what? I'm, I am venturing to say that a lot of us have thought that and thought, where in the world does that come from? It's the evil one. Those are the missiles that he's shooting at you. It's there. And if you don't have that kind of stuff, good for you. Because he's already shot another missile at you that you really need to be careful to fight against yourself because you're being deceived. He says you need to use this faith as a shield. Now the Roman soldiers, they would take, they would build a shield. It was two layers of wood. They would wet it and they would bend it so it was concaved as you can see there. They would put an iron trim around the outside. They'd put a thing called a boss on the center that was like that, that uh, 
piece of metal there where the brunt of the, the sword blows, and the arrow blows, would hit, and it just reinforced it. It had a leather strap on the back. It had another strap that they could put it over their shoulder and carry it in the battle, and they would do all of this. And the idea was, Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote about Roman times, he said they would, if the archers saw, if the, if the infantrymen were marching forward and they saw the, the archers lining up with their bows and arrows, they would actually back up a little bit and they would get down on their knees and they would just squat down behind that shield. And they just would wait until all the arrows were shot. And then they would jump back up and make the attack again on foot because now they had to go get other arrows the enemy did and they could march forward the leather the 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 shields were often covered in leather and they would soak it in leather and if something burning did hit that leather it would be extinguished so he says this is a picture of faith faith is is having a believing loyalty with god It's saying, God, I trust you, Jesus, I rely on you, but I also am putting my faith in you, but I'm also going to be faithful to you. I'm loyal to you, and I'm depending on you. And it's going back and remembering everything that Christ has done. We're saved by faith, for by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All of this is made available to us. All that we have in Christ is available to us because we trust in Christ. We're loyal to Christ. We're relying on Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. And so I think the challenge for us is just to understand that as we rely on Him, He defends us. You wear the weapons to win the war. Don't forget that it's all made possible by faith that we're depending on him and then in verse 17 he mentions two more pieces and i thank you for your patience this morning as we go through these he says you take the helmet of salvation and you can see the helmets of these soldiers it not only covered their head it covered the sides of their faces it went down over their necks to protect them in that way and he says you know what your helmet is your helmet's not made of metal your helmet is made of salvation Salvation's your helmet. And when you think about how God has rescued you, what He's done to save you, what He's done to rescue you, and you think, oh, I'm so glad I got rescued from hell. I don't have to go to the lake of fire. And yes, He rescued you from that, but He rescued you from something else. He rescued you from all the enemies that are arrayed against you. The forces of evil that are mentioned back in verses 10 through 13. Those enemy powers want to destroy you. They want to tempt you. They want to trick you. They want to lead you astray. They want to intimidate you. And you've been rescued from that, that they have no more authority over your life at all. Greater is he who lives inside of you than he who is out in the world. It's because of the salvation we have in Christ. And so if you look at salvation as being only something that will, you know, you cash in, you've got your golden ticket, you cash it in when you pass away and you go into the next life and, yeah, I get to go to heaven. I get to skip hell. You don't even understand what salvation is all about if that's all you're thinking. It's that, but it's way more. It's because it's a way of living your life today. He has saved you from your shame and He saved you from your guilt and He saved you from these, these, these traditions and these enemy powers that want to control and dominate your life and He set you free from that. 
and He rescued you from it. It's the helmet of salvation. And, I, and I've been trying to figure out, you know, why belt is a truth and why gospel is a, as shoes and, and, and why salvation is a helmet. And I, I think it does affect our thinking, our, our mindset, our attitudes. Do you think and act and reason as a saved person? Or is your identity the football team you're loyal to or the political party you adhere to or the political philosophy that you embrace or is it your college alma mater or is it your financial status or is it the name of your church or your job? Is that where your identity is found? Or is your identity, I've been saved and I belong to Christ. He set me free. And now I can march out in battle and help save others by sharing Christ with them. The last piece of armor he tells us, the last weapon we need to take up if we're going to win the war is this, in verse 17. Take up also the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Spirit has given us the Word of God, and that's our weapon. And this may seem like the most obvious weapon that there is, but I think we often fail to remember how important this book really is and this truth that's been given to us on the pages of this book. Because this is our sword. The sword of a Roman soldier was not a long, broad sword like you see in Lord of the Rings or something like that. You have to use two hands and you're going like this all the time, you know. I think if you tried to do that, it would actually knock you over. It's so heavy. You'll notice their sword is almost like a long dagger, maybe only 18 inches long. It was designed for close combat with thrusting like this. It was sharp. It was powerful. It was deadly. It was a very dangerous weapon to have. But it was also very portable and very mobile, very flexible. And so these Roman infantrymen would be carrying these swords and they would be doing this and they would inflict great damage. And the child of God, who's a member of Christ's royal combat legion, the royal army of Christ, you belong to Christ. If, if you belong to Christ, you're in his army. And if you're in his army, you have spiritual, supernatural enemies. And if you have supernatural enemies, you need this sword. You need to know the word of God. And the thing that's interesting is that there are a couple words in Greek for the word word, and it's not the usual one, logos. It's another one, rhema. And it's the idea of the word that's spoken for a particular moment. And so we see somebody using the sword of the Spirit in a very powerful way in battle, and it's Jesus Christ. And as He's there in the desert... At the beginning of his ministry, the devil comes up to him, and it's like hand-to-hand combat. And the devil tempts Jesus, and he says, take these rocks and turn them into bread. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's starving. Turn these rocks into loaf of bread. Do that. You have the power. And Jesus says, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. No, I'm going to trust my Father and He'll give me bread in His time. He sets Jesus, the devil does, up on the pinnacle of the temple. Jump off! Jump off! Fall that 400 feet! God promises in His Word that His angels will catch you and let you down gently. And Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not going to put God to the test that way. I'm not going to presume upon him that way. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. 
bow down and worship me and I'll give you all this authority. I'll give you power over all these people. I'll give you everything that you're looking for as son of God and king of kings. If you just would bow down and worship me and you don't have to go to the cross and you don't have to be misunderstood and you don't have to do any of that. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to test God that way. In every case, Jesus had a specific word to answer the temptation. It's not that he just like in the exorcist, tore pages out of the Bible and put them on the wall to try to keep out the bad guy, the evil one. It's, it's not like the Bible is some kind of magic charm that, you know, will, will keep the devil away if I read the Bible every day, you know. It's not that. It's a specific word to the temptation so that when you're anxious about your finances, it's remembering that my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When you're tempted to lust is remembering you're a new creation in Christ. You don't have to give into that anymore. You're loved with an everlasting love. When you're tempted to be bitter, it's remembering that if I give into this bitterness, I'm giving the devil a foothold and Jesus Christ has set me free and I've been forgiven and since I've been forgiven, I can forgive. It's, it's understanding that the, the areas where we're under attack in our lives, there's a word that will help us in that situation. And it's learning that and understanding that and applying that. And it's also understanding that as we talk to and meet the people in this world, the people we work with and go to school with and serve with, the members of our family, there's a word for them as well. It's sharing the good news. It's sharing the gospel. It's... Showing and telling what Jesus has done. That's how we fight against the forces of evil. My friends, you will never be able to win the battles that you face in the spiritual realm if you don't apply the Word of God to your life. And if you're saying, I struggle at reading and I struggle making time, my friends, you're at war. You, gotta f- you somehow have to figure out what to do. Ask for help and do it. Make the time and read it. Go to a Bible study and get involved in a growth group. Listen to messages online, on podcasts. Go to version and, and listen to the Word of God as you work out or as you commute to work. But get it in your soul or you will be defeated and lost people will never hear. You've got to know the Word of God. You've got to put it in your heart so you have something to give to others as well. I heard about this pastor named Erwin McManus who sent his son to summer camp. This is several years ago. And it was a Christian camp that he went to. Now, at a Christian camp, they don't tell ghost stories because they don't believe in ghosts. But they do tell Satan and demon stories, okay? <laughs> this little boy comes home, his son comes home from summer camp, and it's bedtime, and he's scared to death. Dad, don't turn out the lights. Please don't leave me, Dad. Will you pray with me, Dad? I'm scared the devil's going to get me. And, and Pastor McManus is sitting there trying to deal with his son, and it's a teachable moment, and he want, doesn't want the son to be frightened, but he wants to learn a lesson. And... 
The dad says this, and some of you are going to be offended by this, but the dad said, no, I'm not going to pray for your safety. I'm going to pray that God will make you dangerous, so dangerous that the devil will run away from you. That's what I'm going to pray for. We live in a culture that our biggest idol is safety. Our biggest idol is health and prosperity. Those are the idols of our culture here in North America. Safety, health, prosperity, peace and affluence. And as long as those gods are never knocked down, then we will be happy and safe and secure. But we have an enemy that's arrayed against us and it's not by being safe that the battle is won, it's by being dangerous. And the only way that you and I will ever be dangerous is if we wear the weapons and we go out and fight, not against flesh and blood. Don't you dare do that. But you fight against the lies and trickery and deceit of the devil, the hatred and bitterness and lust and greed that's so much part of our culture. The fake news claim the reality of what you have in Christ. Wear the weapons and you will win the war. I pray that God will make you and I dangerous. Let's pray. <clears throat> well, Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the blessing of being in your presence today. I want to thank you for just the privilege of, of serving you. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would bless us and help us honor you and give us courage to wear the weapons and win the war. Thank you that it's not our skill as soldiers. Thank you that it's not our courage as soldiers. It's the power of God that's unleashed when we trust you, Lord Jesus, and when we serve you and do your work. And I pray that, Father, you would help us to have that kind of faith, that kind of believing loyalty, that we would rest in you and what you've done, that you might set us free. We ask and we pray and thank you for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.